You may be seated. Welcome to week four of our series of messages called My True Selfie. And if you've been here, you know that uh, we have been looking at what God says in his word about our true selves, about our identity in Christ. And today I want to start uh, by telling you a true story from 150 years ago. Uh, Not long after the Civil War ended, this man, uh, Colonel P.H. Anderson of Big Spring, Tennessee, wrote a letter to a former slave of his. That was this man. His name is Jordan Anderson. And Colonel Anderson asked Jordan Anderson to come back and work on the plantation again. A couple of years earlier, uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation, Jordan uh, had moved north with his family to Ohio. When he got this letter, he wrote a response that was so amazing It was actually reprinted on the front page of the New York Daily Tribune. And you're going to see that his letter to his former slave master is just filled with spectacular, subtle sarcasm. I want to read you you part of it. Here's how the letter begins. August 7, 1865, to my old master. Sir, I got your letter and was glad you had not forgotten me and that you wanted me to come back and live with you again. I have often thought about you. I thought the Yankees would have hung you long before this for harboring rebels. Although you shot at me twice before I left, I did not want to hear of your being hurt. Mandy and I, and Mandy is Amanda, his wife, Mandy and I have concluded to test your sincerity by asking you to send us our wages for the time we served you. I served you faithfully for 32 years and Mandy for 20 years. At $25 a month for me and $2 a week for Mandy, our earnings would amount to $11,686. Add to this the interest for the time our wages have been kept back and deduct what you paid for our clothing and for three doctor's visits and the balance will show what we are entitled to. Please send the money by express. If you fail to pay us for faithful labors in the past, we can have little faith in your promises in the future. Also, please tell me if there are schools there my children can attend. My greatest desire is for them to grow in knowledge. Say howdy to George Carter and thank him for taking the pistol from you when you were shooting at me. (laughs) From your old servant... Jordan Anderson. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? Now, freedom, as we're going to see today, is at the core of our identity in Christ. But the reality is so many Christ followers struggle with living in freedom. So many of us, we actually forget that freedom is part of our identity, that freedom is who we are, that we are free. We find ourselves tempted to return again to slavery. See, we've been learning in this series that the truest thing about us is who we are in Christ, that we are God's precious sons and daughters, that we are saints. We are holy and cleansed in God's sight. We are God's own possession. And we've been uh, repeating and and looking at these theme verses for our series, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. Some of you, many of you have been working on memorizing them. I want us to read them once again out loud together. Would you join me? Uh, Peter says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now we've been seeing that these verses are just filled with identity markers, these statements about who we are, and nestled inside all these identity markers here and then brought out explicitly in a number of other passages across the New Testament is this truth that we're going to look at today, that we are free. We are free in Christ. And so we're going to explore that like we've been doing by looking at three ways that we can live in God's wonderful light. The first is the identity truth. And today it's this. Go ahead and write this in your notes. In Christ, we have been set free from slavery to sin. So at the very beating heart of what it means to follow Jesus is this truth, this reality that all who are in Christ are free, free. If you have trusted in Jesus' death on the cross for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, his resurrection from the the grave for you, for the gift of eternal life to you, then you are in Christ, and that means you are free. Jesus made this very clear. His very first sermon, recorded in the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel, he said this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. Jesus said, I have come to set prisoners free. That's his message. Jesus goes on later, very familiar words. He says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's John 8, 32. A few verses after that, Jesus says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the apostle Paul, he he taught this over and over again. Second Corinthians, he writes, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then a classic statement Paul makes in Galatians, which is a a, a letter that's really all about freedom. Galatians 5.1, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom over and over again, is taught in the scriptures. But have you noticed ever how so many Christians are so far from free? I mean, maybe that's you. Maybe you don't feel free. Why is that? If Jesus said he came so that we could be free, if Paul taught that, that we are free, why is that? Maybe you remember a time in your life when you were free in Christ, but you look at your life now and it's like somehow that freedom has sort of slipped away. You don't know where it went. What what happened? Maybe what you need to do is you need to hear again the wonderful, liberating truth that in Christ you are free, that you are a precious son or daughter of God, that you have been made holy by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because those things are true, you are free. It is who you are. Freedom is your identity. Now, what does that mean? Some of you may be wondering, what does that exactly mean? Well, if I can boil it down, the New Testament speaks of our freedom in Christ in in two primary ways. It speaks of it objectively and then subjectively. It first means objectively that we are free from sin's guilt. 
We are free from sin's guilt. Romans 8, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. In other words, God has set us free by Jesus' death on the cross, set us free from the objective penalty of sin. Jesus' death has justified us. It has made us righteous. It has made us right in God's sight. We are forgiven, and that means something wonderful. If you don't know it, please hear it today. Please begin living in it today. We don't have to live with the sense that we are not acceptable to God anymore. We do not have to live with this low-grade guilt that's always sort of simmering in the background of our lives. God has accepted you in Christ. You are free. Amen? Amen? Second, freedom means subjectively that we are free from sin's power. Free from sin's power. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, this is a very deep and complex topic. There's a lot of things going on here, but let me put it this way. The power that sin used to exert over you, it died with Christ on the cross. You now, in Christ, have the freedom to resist sin. You don't have to give in to it when you are tempted. You are not a slave to sin like you were before. You remember those days, don't you? Those days when it was like you just did it and you couldn't stop. Even when you felt like you didn't want to, you gave in, you succumbed, you sinned. That was because you were a slave to sin. But now you're not. God has given you a new self. That new self is alive in Jesus Christ. You're free. Now, some of you are probably asking right now, okay, well, <laughs> why do I still sin? It's a good question. And the answer is that we live in a broken world and things have not yet been made fully perfect. And it is true. We do sometimes still sin. And when this happens, it is because we give in to the power of sin that we don't have to give in to. And when that happens, a lot of times what follows is something like this. I can begin shifting my old way of thinking into the present. I can begin to think that sin still enslaves me. And what I need to remember when that happens is that it is not the true me, but it is the sin in me that is actually corrupt. Paul says, I am a new creation in Christ. And that new life, that new creation, that new me, who I really am, is no longer chained to my old sin-enslaved self. Sin no longer has control over me. I'm not under its power. This means that when you are in Christ and sin comes in front of you, you're tempted to sin, you now have the power to choose not to sin. You can now say no to temptation. You can immediately access God's power to defeat sin instead of just allowing sin to defeat you. See, the real question is not why do I sin? The real question is if I am in Christ, am I living in the freedom that Christ has given me, the freedom that is now who I am. Are you living in that freedom? See, some of us, here's the reality. Some of us just feel guilty all the time. 
you, you just live. It's like a low-grade fever that's kind of simmering in the background all the time. You always feel guilty. Some of you, that's because you've been allowing Satan, your enemy, to deceive you, and you are listening to his accusations, the things that he says about you, the, the names that he calls you. You've given in to that. You think you're guilty even when you've been forgiven. Some of us, we're more enslaved to our own accusations. We don't need someone else to tell us how bad we are. We're telling ourselves how bad we are all the time. Some of you, about 90% of your prayers sound pretty much like this. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. God, I'm so stupid, so stupid, so stupid, so stupid. God, I'm just a terrible person. God, I'm so weak. I'm so dirty. I'm so ashamed. That's what most of your prayers feel like, sound like. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to ever express those feelings, but if that is the vast majority of what you express to God, something is amiss. I mean, I understand that. I've been there. I felt like that sometimes. But when we live there, when we live in that, we are living in slavery. Yes, we sometimes sin. I mean, in fact, I like to take surveys, you know, of the congregation, each service, see how you do compared to the other service. Even though you're my favorite service, <laughs> sometimes I like to just check things out. So I'm going to take a real quick survey, okay? How many of you, just raise your hand, uh, how many of you think that in this next week you're going to sin at least once? Would you just raise your hand right now? How many of you need to raise both hands because you know I'm going for, I'm good for two, <laughs> at least two, you know? So we're all going to sin. Sometimes, yes. And when that happens, and it's going to happen next week, when that happens, here's what you need to do. It's really very simple. You just need to bring the sin before God and confess it. You just need to tell him what you did and that you know that what you did or what you said or what you thought, it's wrong. And then you need to trust that God will do what God has already promised that he will do when you confess your sins. Amen? Because the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. Some of us really should memorize that verse because it's so important. When you confess, you need to trust that he has forgiven you just like he says. You need to receive the cleansing that he has promised to give you. You need to believe that you are clean because God said you are. You need to move ahead. You don't need to keep feeling guilty and anything different from that is a return to slavery. It means you're not fully living in the freedom that you have in Christ. You are free. It is your identity. It is who you are. See, Paul says this, Galatians 5.1. I'm gonna give you the whole verse now. Uh, I read just part of it a, a minute ago. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In Christ, you are free from slavery to sin. This is who you are. And when you are tempted to return to that slavery, you need to stand firm. Now let me show you next, second way that we can live in God's wonderful light. And we've been looking at identity theft each week how we can lose this identity truth of who we are in Christ. And I want you to see some of the main ways that you can lose this part of your identity, that you're free. Put it this way, we lose our freedom in Christ 
when we substitute anything else for God's free grace. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul spends a lot of time talking about this issue. And in verse 8, he gives this command. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now, Paul uses a a Greek word for captive here that could mean kidnapping or, or robbery. And he is just saying, you've been set free. You have found freedom in Christ, so do not allow your old slave masters to lure you back into slavery again. And the Colossian Christians really needed to hear this because something had happened in their churches. Some teachers had kind of emerged in their churches and were teaching them basically this. These teachers were saying, look, we, the teachers, we are the enlightened spiritual masters and you need to listen to what we have to say to you so you can move on to the next level of spiritual truth. You need to listen to what we have to say. And, And when you look at what we know about their teaching, it could be boiled down pretty much to one word, and that word was more. They said things like do more. You have to pray more, fast more, engage in more religious ritual. They said you have to experience more. You, you need to have more dreams, more visions, more uh, you know, exciting, mystical, spiritual experiences. They said you have to give up more. You, know, you have to punish your body Strict self-denial. Don't do this. Don't do that. They had all these kinds of rules that you had to follow. They were really saying, you know, it's great that you accepted Jesus, but now you need to do more if you're going to go to the next level like us. Now, that doesn't just happen in the past. That still happens all the time today. And there are a lot of pastors that you might listen to on TV or on a podcast who subtly teach forms of this. There probably are some people that you're going to encounter, maybe even in the Bible studies that you're a part of, who may unwittingly advocate some forms of this. I heard recently a story of a man who who became a Christian when he was 18 years old. And he was so excited about what Jesus had done for him, how Jesus had changed his life, and how free that he felt as he began this new life with Christ. But he said a few weeks later, the shackles went back on. He said, my pastor in this church began to lay down all the rules. There were all kinds of rules, rules like men couldn't have facial hair, women couldn't wear pearls, some hair was too long, and some hair was too short. There were just all kinds of rules in this church. And he said, then the pastor explained to me that when I had accepted Jesus, that was a good thing, but all that had really happened is I'd become a candidate for full salvation. And I was told that I was going to reach the next level. I needed to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of the gift of speaking in tongues. This guy said, I just tried for months and months to get this, but I couldn't. And eventually he said, I walked away from Christianity for years because I decided if that's what Christianity is about, I don't want anything to do with it. Finally, years later, he said, I came back to church again and I began to study the Bible again. And I began to realize that All that legalism, which was probably meant for good, had just kept me in chains. I want to be real clear here because some of you are getting offended right now, I know. Um, I am not taking any shot at a particular theological tradition here. This sort of thing can happen in any kind of church, even in ours. 
I'm just giving you an example of the kind of thing that Paul is addressing here. And what you need to hear is that Paul's answer to this kind of thing is simply this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. You have all you need spiritually in Jesus right now. And this is, this is why this is so important. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen one day you're going to get a letter from your old slave master. And it may come through a book or it may come through a sermon or it may come through something a relative tells you is really, really the truth. And you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted to go back to return to the religious slavery that Jesus set you free from. And so you need to be alert to how this can come at you. Uh, You need to be able to recognize what I'm going to call three religious freedom thieves that Paul talks about in Colossians 2. Some of you may be surprised to know how often the Bible actually warns against religion. And we're going to see these these three thieves in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. You might want to get your Bibles open to that. And the first thief, the first way your freedom can be stolen is what I'm going to call traditionalism. Traditionalism. Now, be clear, this is not about tradition. Uh, Traditions can be very, very good. They can be very meaningful and helpful in many ways uh, when we understand and we practice them in a biblical way. But have you ever noticed how easy it is for traditions to become a, a poor substitute for genuine spiritual life? This is what Paul is addressing in verse 16. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you. And religious people love to judge, don't they? Have you ever known someone who thinks that judging is actually their spiritual gift? (laughs) Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Question right here. Do, Do people in the Bay Area ever judge anyone else about what they eat or drink? Like all the time, right? And how about people on strict diets. I mean, have you noticed that people on strict diets can be some of the most judgmental people? You know, they're judging you because you're not on their diet. But if they're people who are on strict diet for religious reasons, Paul says, oh, it goes to a whole nother level. And he says, don't let them do that to you. He goes on to say, uh, don't let them judge you with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, These are all examples of religious traditions that can have some value. We'll just take a look at one to explain this, and that'll be the Sabbath. The Sabbath, if you read the Bible, we see that it was meant uh, by God to be one day a week that is a day of rest dedicated to God, and it is a gift of God to us, a gift of God's grace. But isn't it interesting how, how the Sabbath has been turned into a subject of religious controversy for thousands of years. You know, and people judge other people all the time on on what they do. You know, um, what specific day are you keeping your Sabbath on? People are still fighting about that. Or specifically on the Sabbath, whatever that is for someone, are you really resting? Or are you sinning by shopping at Winco for your groceries? Some of you are going to sin at Costco after this service. According to some people, right? In fact, I've been told, I mean, I, I, I don't do this. Since I love Jesus, I don't do this. 
but I've been told that if you go to Costco, you are running to half of Southwinds <laughs> Sunday morning. Well, some people would say that's a sin. Some people would say on the Sabbath, you should not go to a football game. You know, that's violating the Sabbath. And I, I would agree if it's the Raiders, I would say, yeah, that's <laughs> definitely a sin. And I'm going to judge you on that, okay? Uh, but Paul says, no. Paul says, no, it, it is your responsibility not to let anyone judge you on these things. Why? Well, verse 17 tells us, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. See, Paul is just telling us something we always need to remember about any tradition. Traditions are always meant to point us to Christ. And Sabbath, for example. The Sabbath was meant ultimately to remind us that God does not want us to live exhausted lives, that God wants us to rest. He wants us to trust him to provide for all of our needs. And we are told in the New Testament, you can read Hebrews about this, that the Sabbath is completely fulfilled in Christ. Why? Because in Christ, I can rest permanently from all my labors, all my work of trying and striving and working and exhausting myself, just trying to earn God's favor and being good enough. I don't have to do that anymore because in Christ, I am saved by God's grace. And some of us need to hear that. Some of us are living and we're just exhausted all the time. And I wonder if this is you. Are you just exhausted all the time? And the reason for you is because you never know if you've been good enough. You've never known if you've done enough good things. You're always worried. You know you're going to die one day. And when you get to that point and you die and you go into God's presence, have you gonna, well, you've done enough. See, we're supposed to rest. And the Sabbath is the example of that. We're supposed to rest. We don't have to worry about this. We don't have to strive because our sins, all of them, have been forgiven by the grace of God. See, traditions can turn into traditionalism. And we need to remember that when the tradition becomes the point, we forget that the tradition is supposed to point to Jesus. And so the solution to this is always just to remember the truth behind the traditions. Again, I'm not against traditions. Some of us really need to cultivate some of them in our lives uh, for a lot of reasons. But traditionalism is when we make tradition the point. So make sure that you yourself are not judging other people by the traditions that they prefer. Make sure that you aren't turning your preferences into absolutes. Make sure that you're not turning your personal taste into universal truths and make sure you're not letting other people do that back to you. Paul says when we allow that to happen, it's taking us away from our identity of freedom in Christ. It's taking us back to slavery. Second religious freedom thief that Paul talks about, we'll call mysticism. Now, mysticism is what happens when you think that you have to have a certain uh, a mystical or emotional experience to be a real spiritual Christian. Like it could be in different traditions, speaking in tongues or, or seeing visions or maybe being able to heal people by praying or, or prophesying, or maybe it's praying hard enough and long enough that you kind of pray through to some emotional, spiritual breakthrough. 
It could be a lot of things, but I, I want to be sure you don't misunderstand. It's just like traditionalism versus tradition. There's nothing wrong per se about having a mystical, supernatural experience if it's in accordance with the truth of, of God's word. I'm not against that. The Bible's not against that. The danger comes when we turn our experiences into our focus. And then we, we put on everyone else our experience, like our experience becomes the norm. And if people don't have our experience, then they're really not up where we are at the, the level of the enlightened spiritual master that we are. That's slavery. And sometimes people do that back to us. Look what Paul writes here. This begins in verse 18. He says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Now, apparently these teachers were saying that these angelic spirits were appearing to them. They were having visions and encounters, and and they were giving them prophecies for the church. Paul's saying these teachers have moved from worshiping God to worshiping angels, worshiping their experience. And he's just telling the Colossians, you know, don't let someone tell you if you don't have their experience, you're disqualified. That's what they were doing. He says, such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. In other words, they're puffed up with pride because they've had certain experiences. And because of that flowing out of that, they have these idle notions. This is, I think, referring to people who have this tendency to think that whatever pops into their mind must be from God. They take whatever pops into their mind as a direct leading from God. What's wrong with that? Well, Paul answers very bluntly in verse 19. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. See, they're they're so focused on their own experience. They've lost connection with Jesus they've made their experience kind of the test. I was remembering this week um, when we were in Chicago back in the 90s, I was pastoring at a church. There was another church in the area that kind of got some notoriety because they were having these unusual things happening in the church and some of them were kind of bizarre stuff people were doing. And somebody interviewed the pastor of this church and asked him, how do you know this is from God. And he said, well, it's odd. He said, if it's odd, it's from God. <laughs> so like, does that mean if it sneezes, it's from Jesus? <laughs> and, and there are some people who are prone to think that weird stuff must mean it's God's stuff. And the Bible never says that. That's what happens when you make your experiences the focus. You make your experiences the test. You notice it says in verse 19, as God causes it to grow, you know, God may allow you to have some special intimate experiences with him, but it's always as God causes it. You know, if you find that you're always pursuing some spiritual high, I just want to tell you, you're probably on the wrong track. What you're supposed to be pursuing always is only Jesus. You pursue Jesus and let him take care of anything else that comes around that. You need to worship the giver, not the gift. And so don't be striving for some experience that someone has told you makes you more spiritual. Don't worry about that. The third uh, freedom killer, freedom thief, is probably the most insidious, the most sneaky. It's probably the one that actually affects the most of us. 
I want to call it moralism. And moralism is when I believe that following certain rules kind of makes up the sum of what it means to be a good Christian, how a good Christian lives. It's about the rules. It's about if you don't do this, you don't do that, then you're a really good Christian. Sometimes we call this legalism. And what's really sad about this, the real, really big problem about this one is that most people on the street, if you ask them, the people who live in your neighbor, the people you work with, if you ask them what Christianity is about, they're going to give a definition that's really about rules, right? Most people outside the church think that Christianity means you don't do certain things. You have to keep certain rules. And there's actually a very good reason why a lot of them think that. You know what it is? The reason is that's often the way we come across. We often characterize our faith about rules. I mean, some of you right now, are you're thinking about the churches that you've been in in the past. And have you noticed in a lot of churches, there are rules. And the rules can vary from church to church. But if you're there long enough, you learn what the rules are. And you learn you're supposed to live this way. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. We need to make sure that we are not creating extra biblical rules that we then define as what it means to follow Christ. And there's another thing I think we should be aware of in this, and um, this has to do with how we raise our kids. Some of us as parents probably do not realize that oftentimes we are raising our children to believe in moralism. Some of you are doing that because that's what your parents did to you. You say, what are you talking about? Well, it could show up in a number of ways, but if you ever find yourself telling your child as you're trying to get them to obey, you better do this or Jesus won't be happy with you. You're heading your child down this road. Do you understand that? You see that? You are telling a child that obedience or disobedience either turns on or turns off Jesus' happiness with them. That's called moralism. The truth of the matter is, when we are in Christ, we are accepted in him. We are beloved by him as a precious son or daughter, holy and pleasing to God, God's own possession, God's own people, period. It doesn't mean sin's okay, but when you sin or don't sin is not the measure of if God likes you today or not. And sometimes it's so, it's so interesting how we can tell our children something and set them up to live something that distorts their whole life, that destroys their freedom in Christ, probably because it reflects our own view of our freedom in Christ. I'm going to show you some verses uh, that are right here in this flow of things in Colossians. You may be surprised at what you're going to see because they actually really contradict what a lot of people think Christianity teaches. Uh, verse 20 says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, and Paul's already talked about this earlier, but this, this basic principles idea boils down to the way everyone thinks. And what Paul's describing here is what we call quid pro quo, uh, this for that, and this is the idea that we all pretty much have in the world. You do something to get something. That's how the world works, isn't it? And everybody kind of assumes that. Paul says, that's how the world thinks, but we're under grace. He says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
Now, if you're marking in your Bible, you might want to circle rules and then underline all the do nots because this is what most people think our faith is really about. And Paul is saying that's a distortion. Paul actually points out here a couple of problems with legalistic rules. The first one, he says, is rules don't last. Look at verse 22. He says, these are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Now, how many of you have ever noticed that the rules that you were raised with in church, the rules you grew up with in church, a lot of those seem awfully dated today. Have you ever noticed that? Um, You know, I've shared with you before, I have a PhD in church history, so I've had a lot of opportunity to study different parts of church history. And one of the things I've come across many times are controversies that Christians have had down through the centuries. And so often these controversies seem utterly ridiculous to us today. I'll give you one example. In the 19th century, true story, Christians in Canada, in this particular denomination, had this huge fight over whether clothes should have only buttons or whether clothes that Christians wore were allowed to have zippers. Does that sound like a really pressing spiritual issue to you today? The, the truth of the matter is, we say who cares, but the entire, this entire denomination actually split over this. You know, the zipper people and the non-zipper people. I don't know. <laughs> but it was a change in society, and some people thought, no, the devil is in the zippers. I, you know, maybe sometimes. I don't, I don't know. But, uh, you know, some of us, we don't have to go that far back. Some of us are old enough to remember uh, when, when people in some churches argued about whether or not a woman should wear pants, right? I mean, I'm not old enough to remember that, but some of you actually are. Um, <laughs> Paul says rules don't last, and it's really true. He also says rules don't work. And that is the biggest problem. Rules don't even work. They don't do what people think they do. Look at verse 23. He says, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, like they seem really righteous, with their self-imposed worship. In other words, it's not worship that springs from love for God. It's it's self-imposed. Their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, watch this, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul doesn't say, well, they have some value and they're like useful at certain times. He says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, they lack any value in truly changing you. And I want to tell you right now, if some of you could hear this today, it would change your life. It would change your life. This verse could set you free. See, some of us need to give up our rules because the rules don't change us. Have you ever asked yourself, why not? I'll give you the answer. Rules don't work because rules actually focus your attention on the very thing you are trying to avoid. I've talked to people about this in counseling, in a lot of different occasions in spiritual conversations, and I've often used this this picture, this illustration. I want you to do something right now, please, for me. Right now, like in your mind, I want you to do this for me. Are you ready? Here's what I want you to do. Do not think of a purple polka-dotted elephant. Like, stop, don't, don't, no purple polka-dotted elephants. Wipe it out of your mind. Quit thinking. I see you're thinking. You, you get where I'm going with this? 
as soon as you try not to think about it, what do you do? You think about it. You think about it. And now that I've described the purple polka dotted elephant, some of you, that's all you're going to be thinking about for the whole rest of the message. <laughs> and you're going to go home and somebody's going to say, what did the pastor talk about? You say, purple polka dotted elephants. This is a message this Sunday. Um, but have you ever stopped to think that some of you are doing that very thing in your spiritual life, trying to change your life? Don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. Don't look at porn, don't look at porn, don't look at porn. Don't get angry, don't get angry, don't blow up, and don't get angry. And then you wonder why you can't stop. You wonder why you keep doing that. Because it doesn't work, right? Now Paul, be clear, is not saying it's wrong to restrain sexual indulgence because sobriety is a virtue. Sexual purity is a virtue. Self-control over your anger is a virtue. The problem is this. The do-nots do not work. They just don't. Now, it is important at this point that I add a caveat, okay, because some people get confused here. I am not saying that obedience to Christ's commands is legalism. Obedience to Christ's commands is not legalism. And I get that from people sometimes. Sometimes I'll show them, well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says you should do that. And, and people say, well, you shouldn't get all legalistic on me. <laughs> legalism is, is not about keeping rules. Legalism is about why you keep the rules. Legalism is when you think that by keeping the rules, somehow you are earning favor with God and that God is either pleased or displeased with you according to how much you obey. But we need to obey the Bible's commands. See, legalism is when we take our off, eyes off of Christ and we focus on our performance. So what's the ultimate solution? Well, the ultimate solution flows right out of this. The third way we live in God's wonderful light, our identity training this week is this. We live out our freedom in Christ as we focus on Christ. As we focus on Christ. As we can encounter attempts to bring us back into bondage again, whether those attempts come from inside us or they come from other outside slave masters, the solution is always the same. We refocus and refocus and refocus on Jesus, on who Jesus is, on what Jesus has done for us. We don't focus on the sin we're trying to avoid. It's the principle of, mis or, or, I should say, redirection right? You've learned this. Some of you, especially with like a toddler, a two-year-old, have you ever had a two-year-old that gets fixated on something? It could be anything, but they want it and they want it now. And for whatever reason, they can't have it right now. Some of you have experienced this and you know, if you try to tell them no and try to say it just can't happen right now, it just is like pouring gas on a fire. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Some of you have learned that you can get them sidetracked rather easily because they're two by giving them something else that they want that's okay for them to have right now, right? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you said, that doesn't work with my kids. My kids are evil. I mean, it's just... <laughs> but there's this principle of redirection that's a vital part uh, of the spiritual life. And we're not a different in here, even as adults. 
sometimes we need to not just resist, we also need to redirect. We need to give our thoughts to something more beautiful, more fascinating than the sin that we're trying to avoid, more comforting to our souls than the condemnation we just keep pounding ourselves with. And this is what Paul does in the first part of Colossians 3. Look what he says, verses 1 through 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You see, that that old life, it's over, it's past. You have a new life, you have a new identity. So because of that, set your heart, set your minds on Christ. And the principle is this, change happens as I redirect my thoughts away from myself and I lose myself in the beauty of Christ, the beauty of Jesus. This happens in so many ways. When you come to worship services like we have today, you know, we're singing songs. You should not be thinking about whether or not you like this song. You should be looking to the truths that are being sung by the body of believers all around you that point to the beauty of Christ, and you should be losing yourself in that. You should be taking those words up to heaven in worship and adoration. When you're listening to the message, you should not be evaluating whether it's a good message this week or not. Please don't do that. (laughs) You should also not be, you know, thinking to yourself, when is he ever going to shut up? You never know. I mean, you never know. What you should be thinking about is what in this message is drawing me to Christ and causing me to learn of Christ and causing me to focus on Christ. Your thoughts should be, who is Christ and what is he speaking to me today? It's the same thing that should be happening in your times of private devotion when you're reading God's word and and you're praying. You're just taking this in. And I want to be real clear. I'm not talking about your feelings. Paul says, set your thoughts. He says, set your minds on things above. He's talking about decision. He's talking about action. He's talking about something that requires determination. The bottom line is you let your heart be captured by Christ. And really you could say it this way. The way to avoid being recaptured by religious freedom thieves is you let your heart be captured by Christ. And maybe another way of saying it is this. If you don't want to be a slave to the past, and you don't want to be a slave to other people, and you don't want to be a slave to anything else, here's the ultimate answer. You become a slave to Christ. Jesus is your master. Jesus is your master who sets you free. And the more you focus on him, the more you'll be free from these other things that will take you back into slavery. You say, well, how does this happen in my life? Well, let me close by just saying this. It's something you've heard me say before, and I'm just going to let you know you're going to hear me say it again. You, you let this, ha- this happens as you read God's word. This is not about how you feel. This happens as you listen to God's word more than your feelings. This happens as you pray God's word back to him more than you just tell God how you feel. Some of you, the problem with your prayer life is that all you do is tell God how you feel. You need to start speaking truth in your prayers and let truth be what you pray. This happens, friends, as you quit listening to those old slave masters, whatever, whoever they are for you, and you listen to what God says about you. You believe what God says about you. 
You believe what God says about you more than you believe what your parents said about you, more than you believe what your ex may be saying about you, more than you believe what anyone else says about you. I want to give you this very practically as we go, something you can do um, if you are in Christ today, you've placed your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, for the gift of eternal life. And here's what I want you to do this week to grow in your understanding of freedom, this identity. I want you to speak the truth of yourself about your freedom in Christ every day. I want you to do this for a week. You say, how do I do that? Well, you can start with the verses that we've looked at today. You can find plenty of other verses as well. But every day, do it before you go to bed tonight. Read some of these verses we've looked at and pray them back to God. Confess them to God. Believe them because they're God's word to you. And then get up tomorrow and do it again. And then get up the day after that and do it one more time. And just let that become the practice and the pattern of your life that every day you're going to God's word and you're hearing God's truth and you're reflecting God's truth back to him and let it shape your heart and let it shape your mind. You are free in Christ. Freedom is who you are. You are free. You are free. Now, as we close today, I want you to see one more thing about why this is even more important than you suspect, because this actually is not just about you. Remember that story I told you at the beginning of the message? You ever wonder what happened to somebody like that, that particular former slave who wrote that letter back to his old slave master? Well, actually, there's a historian, and here's a picture of him, who went into the historical records to research that story. And as he was researching the story about Jordan Anderson, he found a census record. And I want to show you a picture of the census record he found. And highlighted there are three of Jordan and Mandy Anderson's children. Actually, Jordan and Amanda Anderson are listed above the highlighted part, but there's three children there, and it says in this census record what they were doing, and you may not be able to read it. Um, If you can't, what it says they were doing is attending school. They were attending school, and you'll remember that that was Jordan's great desire for his children, but it actually gets even better than that. Here's a a more recent picture of actually uh, a descendant. Uh, This is a picture of uh, his great-grandson, Jewel Wilson, and his wife, Estella, at their home in Dayton, Ohio. And as you look at that picture, you'll see all those family pictures on the table next to the couch. And Jewel Wilson says that all of the great-great and all of the great-great-great grandchildren of Jordan Anderson. They all got great educations. They've all gotten great jobs. Why? Well, in a sense, because one of their ancestors, Jordan, refused to be lured back into a form of slavery. And he changed the direction of generations. You see, when you refuse to be lured back into some kind of legalistic rules or captivity, when you stay focused instead on Jesus, it not only changes your life, it impacts generations. It impacts your children. It impacts their children when they're born. You know, we, we, we've all heard how the younger generations are all leaving the church today. And actually, I'm not so sure that's the total picture because I think that many people, many young people 
who are leaving the church are actually walking away from these distortions of the faith. So one of the best things that you can do for your family, for the next generation, for the generation after that, for the people in your neighborhood and for your own heart is to stay focused on Jesus. Make your life about Jesus. Rest in the freedom that you have in Jesus. It is your identity. It is who you are. Would you bow your heads as we pray? As your heads are bowed, I just want uh, to encourage you to think about where you are in your life right now. Maybe it's true you've fallen into one of these subtle traps. Be reminded today that Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could keep rules. He died so you could have a new life with him. So maybe you just need to pray about that, that he would draw you back to your first love, draw you back to reality, that your identity is in Christ and in him as his son or his daughter, you are free. Maybe you've actually never taken that first step of faith, uh, committing your life to Christ. Maybe you've been hearing all these things I've been talking about kind of like from the outside. And if that's you today, I just urge you, God the Father, through God the Son is offering salvation to you today. And you could come to know him today if you would simply turn from your sins. The Bible calls that repentance. And turn to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. Trust in him to forgive you by his death on the cross. Jesus said in his very first sermon, I have come to set the prisoners free. And that's what he wants to do for you right now. Let Jesus set you free. If you don't know him, let him set you free from the guilt of sin. If you do know him, help ask him to help you be free from the power of sin in your life. Just surrender yourself to him today. Ask him to help you live in freedom. Father, we do ask that. We thank you for your word, how it it speaks to our lives and it meets us right where we are. Lord, we thank you today for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, the freedom that we can celebrate by your grace. Lord, uh, guard us and guide us not to return back to the slavery of the past. Help us to live in the freedom that you give us today. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.